Are you willing to put aside all speculation and announce to the people here that you are not running in 2020? No. Overall, wages are down. People are working longer hours for less money. Obamacare part illegal immigrants. Well, African Americans uh, being mistreated in society. Noting that world leaders laughed at President Trump. Russian witch hunt. Trade war. You know what it is? My new slogan. America great. Thanks for joining us for this special episode of 2020 Vision. My guest this week worked as an executive assistant to US President Ronald Reagan for 10 years and is the author of The President Will See You Now, My Stories and Lessons from Ronald Reagan's Final Years. She's also a contributor to the Fox News Network in the United States. Becky Grandy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. You began working with President Reagan at the age of 22. How terrifying was it sort of turning up on your first day at work at that age? (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to lie, I was a little bit nervous, um, but he He had this way of making you feel very warm and welcome. And, you know, there was a lot of work to do. And so I had a job to do early on. Of course, it was a little intimidating, but the staff was very welcoming. I learned a lot very early on. And I thought that I would be there for a short time. I started as an intern, a volunteer in his office while I was graduating from college. And at the end of that internship, they offered me a full-time staff position working for the chief of staff. So I served as his executive assistant for a few years. And then Ronald Reagan's longtime executive assistant he had since before he was governor retired and they asked me to take that job. So I never lost that feeling of awe, but at the same time, I knew he was counting on me and I couldn't get lost in the moment. I had to be thinking five or 10 steps ahead. What made you decide to write this book and share your personal reflections? I actually wasn't sure um, how I felt about writing a book. Uh, When you have a position of proximity like that, it's a little intimidating to think that, you know, maybe some might think it's a kiss and tell book or that kind of thing. But I spoke at an event a few years back and it completely changed my perception. This gentleman came up afterwards who works for um, the University of Virginia and they do this presidential history project. And he said to me, Peggy, you need to write a book and tell your story in print. And I gave him the typical answer. Oh, no, I don't feel that it's appropriate. I don't think I'll do that. And he said something that changed my mind. And he said, if there was a woman who sat outside Abraham Lincoln's office door, every day for 10 years. Don't you think we would want to know what she saw, what she observed, what she learned? And don't you think she would owe it to history to tell us? And so that changed my perspective. I still wasn't planning on writing a book, but just through an unbelievable set of circumstances, I was approached by a top publishing house in the U.S. and asked to tell my story in book form. So that's what I've done. Uh, You end up working for him uh, for 10 years, as you said, as uh, executive assistant, which suggests to me that uh, you quite enjoyed that job. What, uh, What kind of boss was he? I did. He was a fantastic boss. He's one of those few people that I think people admired from afar. And you know how maybe it is. Sometimes you admire a celebrity or a sports hero from afar, and then you meet them and maybe a little bit disappointed. They're not quite what you thought. Ronald Reagan, I think, was one of those few people that regardless of the pedestal you had put him on, you couldn't help but like him personally even more. He was warm and welcoming and charming. But at the same time, you knew that this was a man of strength and of fortitude. I mean, he had gone toe-to-toe with the Soviet Union. And yet behind this strength was a wonderful, gracious humanity that I got to see every day on display. It feels like President Reagan's legacy looms large over politics, particularly at the moment with another celebrity president in the White House um, and one who borrowed Reagan's trademark, Make America Great Again, from from (laughs) 1980. Beyond their similar showbiz backgrounds, uh, do you see many similarities between Presidents Trump and Reagan? You know, both of them, I think, actually really love 
America and love the people of America. Both of them had a way of connecting to people in the heartland of America, maybe those that are ignored by the coastal elites or the media. And so Donald Trump and Ronald Reagan both have a great way of connecting with the average common man. Now, it's a little ironic for Donald Trump to be able to do that so well because he's kind of a blue collar billionaire, I guess you could call it. Um, (laughs) But Ronald Reagan himself came from the Midwest. He was born in the midst of the Great Depression to a family that was very poor. His father was an alcoholic. And so he understands the struggles of everyday man. And so I think they both had a great way of resonating and communicating directly to that group of people. And they've responded to Reagan overwhelmingly at the polling place. And I believe they'll do the same to reelect Donald Trump in 2020. Um, I saw you mentioned uh, in an interview that you gave that you thought President Reagan would have been on Twitter if he'd been president today. (laughs) What what makes you think that? I don't know if he would have been able to tweet down that wall, but um, (laughs) I do think he would have been on Twitter because he was always about the next generation. Mm -hmm. He was always about connecting with people where they were. He always said you don't communicate above people or beneath people. You talk right to people. And so that would have been a wonderful way for him to directly communicate to the people of the nation. And Personally, I would have loved to have followed his Twitter feed because he was the king of one-liners and he was so witty. We know that he would have had a great way of putting people at ease, making them laugh, maybe even at themselves. He used a lot of self-deprecating humor, and so I'm sure his Twitter feed would have been quite entertaining. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Someone else who uh, isn't shy on Twitter is uh, Democratic Congresswoman uh, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez. In March, uh, she criticized President Reagan uh, at South by Southwest, uh, suggesting that he pitted white working-class Americans against brown and black working class Americans when he used the term welfare queens. What did you make of those comments? Yeah. Well, AOC, as we fondly call her in the US, um, has been widely criticized by both sides of the political aisle. And even people who are far to the left have said she really needs to learn to do her job and maybe take some note from those who have gone before her before she steps into places like that. And so I did pen an article for Fox News that said, you know, don't talk about my boss that way. She probably has a few things she could learn from Ronald Reagan if she chose to to sit back and listen. Uh, You talk a lot about civility in the book and this idea that President Reagan showed you that you could be strong but also kind. Looking at the state of political debate, not just in the the United States, but I guess across all Western democracies at the moment, uh, do you think that we can ever come back from this kind of hyper-partisanship that we're seeing in politics today? Yeah. You know, I'm a great optimist. I work for the great optimist. And so I always think that there's a chance. And I always believe that the pendulum swings. And what we see right now is a great divide between the substance and the style in politics. And people would be surprised to know that the substance of what Donald Trump is doing in the U.S. is historic. We have historic low unemployment across all sectors, all demographics. We have got historic growth of our GDP. We're on a pathway to energy independence. There's great things happening economically in the U.S., But all we hear about is the style of the president. And I'm one who believes that our leaders truly reflect us. And so if we don't like our leaders, I think we should take a long, hard look in the mirror and say, are we a people that value substance and principle and civility? Are we giving civility and loyalty and trust and respect to our leaders? And if not, then it's no surprise that the vitriol goes both ways. And so I believe that we should take a look at ourselves and maybe we as a nation, maybe we as a world um, can become more civil and then can expect that from our leaders as well. 
During the president's two terms in office, among the huge achievements in economic reform and his role in the Cold War, one issue that really appeared to challenge him was formulating a response to the AIDS crisis that gripped the United States in the 1980s. I wondered whether later in life he ever expressed to you that the difficulty he had with that particular issue, especially in light of the friends that he and Nancy Reagan lost, like Rock Hudson. Yeah. You know, hindsight is always twenty twenty, And certainly when AIDS came on the scene, there was a lot of confusion about what it was or what it wasn't. Um, and so as he learned about it, the nation learned about it as well. And I think he and Mrs. Reagan were very open to being transparent about their willingness to learn about the issue and to talk about the issue. It was something that he started funding for. Um, people criticized that it wasn't enough, but eventually those funds came. And whether it was AIDS, whether it was cancer, whether it ultimately was Alzheimer's, I appreciated the way these people who were very much in the public sphere took things that were very private and personal and painful to them, like Mrs. Reagan's breast cancer, like his few colon cancer scares, and ultimately his Alzheimer's, and took that and made that public so that other people could share in the the um, research money that went toward that and take away some of the shame and the stigma that some of these diseases had. Uh, you mentioned Alzheimer's. What, what was it like working with the president during uh, those sort of late years of his life? Quite difficult, I imagine. Yeah, absolutely. You know, a lot of people think he left office, he had Alzheimer's and died. And what people don't realize is there was actually 15 years in there. And so five years into his post-presidency, he writes this beautiful, heartfelt letter to the American people, my fellow Americans. I now begin the sunset journey into the end of my life, in essence. And in, in, in essence, it's a goodbye letter to the American people. And so while the American American people start saying goodbye to him. The interesting thing is for the next five years, I was still saying good morning to him yeah. every day. And so what a great example of somebody who, even though he had a diagnosis like that, he was not willing to let that be a death sentence. And he continued on as best as he could, as long as he could. And what a wonderful example he was of somebody who continued through life as best as he could. Um, and a great example to especially people with Alzheimer's and families who struggled with that. Uh, in your book, you mentioned you've been obsessed with the, the presidential pantheon for since you were a little girl, so you're quite young. Um, turning your mind to the 2020 field of candidates at the moment, who among the Democrats do you think has what it takes to, to become the nominee and potentially the next uh, president of the United States? Well, it'll be interesting to watch because I think the left will continue to eat their own. Right. So it will be <laughs> okay. survival of the fittest on the left. Yeah. Um, the interesting thing I think that's going to happen on the left is that they are steering further and further to the left. And I just don't see a pathway for the American people to follow them. Um, the mainstream, even liberal Democratic voter, is very blue-collar, hardworking, union workers, and just are not so consumed by these issues that these Democratic candidates are. So it'll be interesting to watch. Um, I strongly believe that none of them will be a strong contender against Donald Trump. The economic policies that he's put into place, the way that the average person is seeing wage increases and tax deductions and um, in decrease in regulations on their businesses. I just don't see that that's a winning platform, but they're sure going to race over themselves to the left and it'll be interesting to watch. You know, Joe Biden is the front runner right yeah, now. Yeah, I was going to say among blue collar workers, right? He's probably yeah. the sort of the best bet in terms of what you were talking about. But he's got a lot of baggage and that's going to be continued to, brought, to be brought out, not necessarily by the right, but by his own opponents on the left. Um, and and, you know, the left has made such a point of not being 
joining the party of old white men, if we can put it that way, yeah. it would be very difficult for them to have Joe Biden as their nominee. Do you think he might be drawn to the left? He might sort of start formulating policies uh, to appeal to the more progressive elements of his party? We saw when he first came out, I think he was drawn to that. But even in the last few weeks, I see him kind of reformulating his space in a more moderate platform, which is typical Joe Biden mm-hmm. and probably something that would be a more winnable platform for the left. Um, but we'll see if he's able to hold because the the loud megaphone on the far left continues to pull people left. Uh, I noticed uh, for Fox News this week, you wrote about the Australian election. I just wanted to finally just get your thoughts on, on what, you, what your takeaways from that result. Yeah, it was interesting. And in, in my piece, I, I make some parallels between the election of Donald Trump, yeah. also the election of Benjamin Netanyahu in Israel, and also what we're seeing with Brexit in the UK and how the experts, so-called experts, the pollsters, overwhelmingly and increasingly are getting it wrong. And are they intentionally getting it wrong? Or are they just not talking to the average? average everyday person. Um, In my little informal polling the week before the election, when I was here in Australia, asking Uber drivers and cafe (laughs) goers and people that I met on the street, increasingly there was no interest in the Labor Party platform. And yet they said this was an unwinnable election. And so how they get it so wrong, I think maybe there's an interest in getting it wrong. They they want to sway the elections. And we see that in the U.S. You know, Donald Trump was told he did not have a chance. There was no pathway to victory for Donald Trump. Um, And yet the people spoke. And so there is this silent majority, I believe, here in the U.S. We probably are going to see the same thing happen in the UK next week with the elections there. And we certainly saw it in Israel with the re-election of Netanyahu. So the silent um, population still has a voice and the great equalizer is the voting booth still. Peggy, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing those insights with us. Thank you for having me. We're taking a break next week, but we'll return for the first week of June as we gear up for the first of the 2020 Democratic primary debates in Miami, Florida. Until then, don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. And if you're so inclined, leave us a review as well. Thanks to the Babamara Brass Band and Ketza for their musical contributions this week and to the University of Sydney's Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences for their studio assistance.